My name is Galen Washington. I'm an elder here. As you heard, uh, Morgan Stevens and his wife, Carrie, are out of town. So this morning, we're going to hear from one of our very own deacons. Um, you know, what I would say about this, this man and his wife is that they're pillars in this church. Uh, they're oak trees. They are stable factors. They've been here with the church since, like, before the church was founded. I think they helped to lay the foundation of the church. Um, you know, when I think about him and his wife, I think about words like stability and consistency and faithfulness and honor and integrity. And so if you would help me welcome Mr. David Stefano to the stage. How are we doing? If you guys don't mind, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move this up so I at least feel like I'm in the same room with you guys. Thank you, Galen, for that kind and overly generous introduction. In the interest of full disclosure, this is my maiden sermon, if you will. It's the first time for everything. All right. I don't know if I get situated, huh? All right, so we pick up our discussion of the wisdom literature. We're in the midst of a sermon series looking at Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job. And if you remember from last week, Morgan talked about the path. The path is our roadmap to wisdom. And in many ways, what we're going to talk about this morning more or less picks up where we left off last week. So today we're going to be in the 24th chapter of Proverbs. You can open your Bibles there, follow along on your smartphone, or just look at the screen. Starting in verse 30, it says, I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. When I saw I reflected upon it, I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber, and your want like an armed man. So there it is, short, not terribly sweet, and I know what many of you might be thinking. They get the finance guy to come up and talk about money. No, not really. And although our parable does talk about lack and poverty and, in a sense, laziness, I think if we pause and look a little deeper, we will find a much richer truth inside. So this morning we're going to talk about the profile of a sluggard, the protection of a wall, and the profit of a vineyard. Be more explicit with my cues next time. Live and learn. All right. So we start with the profile of a sluggard. When we all think about what a lazy person is or a sluggard, we probably all have similar ideas. Maybe it's your 25-year-old nephew who refuses to get a job and move out of his parents' basement. Maybe it's a buddy who keeps getting fired for showing up late to work or ditching his job. Or maybe it's a coworker who fails to pull their weight on a big project. It's easy to connect the dots on how a life like this would lead to poverty. But in this story, the vineyard represents more than a man's wealth, more than the sum of his earthly possessions. His neglect has invited barrenness on the garden of his own soul. Now Solomon recognized him as someone who is a sluggard, but also someone who lacks sense, in a word, unwise. 
Now, perhaps like many of you as a child, some of my most vivid memories were going to my grandparents' house, and they lived out in East Texas, and we take a couple-hour trip out there to visit them every summer. And what I remember most was the house. It was this, at least in my child's mind, this enormous colonial-style house with pillars in the front, and it was always meticulously maintained. My, my grandfather was always in the garage, always in the yard, always working hard on it. Even when we were in town, he recruited us to rake leaves and pine straw and even clean out the bird feeders. Eventually, it got to the point where he could no longer maintain the house, and he ended up moving to a retirement center. And a number of years later, we all came to visit him, and uh, one of my uncles got us together and said, would you like to go see the house? We'd all get together and go drive by the house. And of course, as a young man at this point, I was excited to see what had become of it. And um, he pulled us aside before we left with a bit of sadness in his voice. And he said, you know, I just want to prepare you. It's not going to look the same way it did when grandmother and granddaddy lived there. And as we drove by, of course, the house was in complete and utter disrepair. The yard was in shambles. The siding needed painting, and they'd made a couple of questionable capital improvements to the home. And at that point, it was just a faint reflection of what I remembered as a child. And Now, I don't know anything about the family that purchased this home, but what was clear was that they had neglected the tending and the upkeep of the house, and what took constant work and diligent effort on behalf of my grandfather took only time and apathy to undo. And if that's true in the natural world, How much more so when it comes to our spiritual walk? Keeping the weeds and the thorns in our hearts and our homes in check requires continuous and diligent tending. The fruit you and I desire in our lives only comes from unbroken attention and effort. A bit of good news, perhaps. Weeds and thorns don't sprout up overnight and walls don't fall down in a day. The scene in this parable seems to have been taking place over years and years. It's not as though our lovable sluggard in the story slept in on a Saturday and woke up to find his vineyard in ruins and his walls fallen over. In fact, it seems as though it's been going on so long that even he is numb to it all. So let's take a look back at the passage, specifically verse 33. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Now, I draw your attention to the fact that that's in quotations. And the reason it's in quotes is that it is, in a sense, a response, a response from the sluggard. If you can picture the writer walking down the path, seeing the the vineyard, and then sort of nudging the owner, grabbing his attention and showing him what's become of his land. And then he replies, after a bit of sleep, I'll take care of it. I just need some rest, maybe tomorrow. He is, in a sense, deceived, certainly unwise. Perhaps he's even convinced himself that by committing at some point in the future to take action, he's engaged in the fight. We can get away with neglecting our own souls for only so long until even we are too deceived to recognize the states of our own hearts. Now, I know what many of you might be thinking. Me, lazy, a sluggard? I barely have time to think. I work late every night, I race home, I pick up my three kids, or in this church, your four kids, or (laughs) you pick up your seven kids and you drag them to the math tutor and soccer practice and piano lessons. You race back home, 
You eat your leftover pizza, pause 15 minutes to chronicle it all on your friends, for your friends on Facebook, pat the wife on the head, go to bed, wake up at 5 a.m., slam a Red Bull, and do it all again. You might even be three seasons behind on House of Cards for crying out loud. Well, if that is you, perhaps I'd suggest that maybe you've missed the point entirely. Do not confuse busyness with diligence. The slothfulness of today is often not an idleness or an inactivity, but rather a haphazard life defined by its immediate needs and desires. This is pervasive inside the church as it is outside. In 2007, researchers conducted a study on the topic of busyness among Christians. Now, roughly 60% of the 20,000 Christians surveyed said that it is often or always true that the busyness of life got in the way of them developing a relationship with God. And that was 2007. That was the year the very first iPhone came out. If you can remember back that far. I hazard to suggest that statistics are probably much worse than that today. The lead researcher, Dr. Michael Zigarelli, summed it up like this. It may be the case that Christians are assimilating to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to God becoming more marginalized in the Christians' lives, which leads to a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, And then the cycle begins again. I feel if we're courageous enough to examine our lives closely, I think we'll find a few more weeds, a few more thorns in our field than we would like. Now, whether your particular brand of sluggishness is a cram schedule or perhaps Netflix and Xbox marathons, I urge you to take it to the feet of the Lord. Allow him to wipe the sleep from your eyes so that you can see the condition of your field for what it truly is. Allow him to show you where your heart and where your attention have been led away. If our heart's natural inclination is to wander, to be distracted, how much more important is it to build and maintain the God-ordained walls given to protect us? Which brings us to the protection of the wall. One of the most obvious signs of decay in the sluggard's field is that the stone wall was broken down. What's the purpose of the wall? Of course, it's to protect what's inside. Time and time again, scriptures refer to walls that represent God's protection. Now, if wisdom is like a road map to navigate life's complexities, it could also be said that wisdom is like a wall to protect us from the world's invasion. And yet here, we see the stone walls of the vineyard laying in ruins. His soul is, in a word, unfenced. Anything can come in, anything can go out. He's left himself exposed to the elements of the world, to the schemes of the enemy, and to the deceit in his own heart. Now, if I can use a sports analogy, if the path is our offense from last week, where are we going, how do we get there, how do we stay out of the ditches, then the stone walls are our defense. How do we, or rather, how does God protect us from the armed man and the weeds and the thorns lurking to choke out the fruit of our lives. This morning, we're going to take a look at three types of walls that God uses to protect us. Spiritual walls, financial walls, and relational walls. Now, the first wall God gives us, perhaps not surprisingly, is himself. 
Psalm 18 says it like this. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. So what does it mean to take refuge in God? What does maintaining spiritual walls look like for me and you? It looks like worship. I'm reminded of what's become a bit of a favorite book of mine. It actually doesn't belong to me at all. It belongs to my three-year-old daughter. Now, I've heard it been said many, many times before that the world's most successful people are often avid, if not voracious, readers. Well, it's sort of become my life goal to defy the odds, if you will. It, <laughs> it, it isn't that I don't like reading. I do. I'm just, I'm just a slow reader, and <laughs> comprehension's not all that good. So... If I can glean a little bit of valuable truth from a book that's mostly pictures <laughs> with a few words sprinkled in, I'm all for it. Perhaps you've heard of the book, You Are Special, those of you with kids, uh, by Max Lucado. Now, in You Are Special, it talks about a town of little w- wooden people called Wemmicks. Now, the story follows one Wemmick named Punchinello. And you, to understand the book, you have to know that the Wemmicks go around putting gold stars and gray dots on one another based on how valuable the other Wemmick is perceived to be. Now, Punchinello is a bit of a, a hapless little guy. He's not terribly smart, not terribly attractive, not terribly talented. And so he finds himself covered in gray dots. And he goes up the hill to meet Eli, the woodcarver. Now, Eli works in his workshop, and he's the one that makes all the Wemmicks. And as Punchinello goes up there, he's surprised to learn that Eli knows his name. And not only that, Eli gets the chance to tell them that he is special. And he's special because he belongs to Eli, and Eli created him. The book ends with Punchinello uh, leaving the w- workshop. And as he's going, the carver tells him, come back day after day, and when you do, you can sit in my presence. And as he leaves, a single gray dot falls to the floor. Now, I think if there were an epilogue to the story, you would see Punchinello returning time and time again, and every time he does, another gray dot falls away. With every moment he spends in the presence of his creator, he looks more and more like he was intended to be. And as we discipline ourselves in worship and in prayer, spending time in his presence, he fortifies our hearts with walls to keep out the thorns and the robbers of the world. I suspect I'm not alone if I were to confess that living out this truth daily is an ongoing struggle for me. Now, as C.S. Lewis puts it, Christians often need to be reminded more than they need to be instructed. And oh, how I, and I suspect some of you, need to be reminded at times. All too often, particularly when things are going well, the subtle suggestion begins to creep in that we just don't need God anymore. At that point, our efforts and our self-reliance blinds us to the deterioration of the spiritual walls around our hearts. The 91st Psalm says it like this, He who dwells in the secret place to the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God in Him I will trust. Just like with Punchinello, this abiding is not a one-time thing. It isn't a bunker to retreat to when all else fails. It is a daily return to the one who loves you and promises to wash away the stains of the world and to protect the garden of your soul. Second, we come to the financial walls. Now, money happens to be a 
topic of keen interest to me. For those of you who don't know, I work in the world of investments. I have two degrees in finance, or in Texas, they say finance. <laughs> I've spent my entire career investing on the behalf of other people. Um, essentially, I buy and sell stocks. Suffice it to say, I spend a great deal of my day thinking about money. Now, part of what I love about the topic of money is that it's intimately relatable to each of us. We interact with money on an almost constant basis. Whether we are making it, spending it, saving it, giving it, investing it, we are constantly bombarded with financial decisions. So much of what drives you and me on a daily basis is the pursuit of financial provision. Jesus talked about money more than any other topic except the kingdom of God. Money is a big deal. And in our highly polarized pre-election discourse, I'm sure you've been hearing more and more about the economy and money and who has too much and who has too little. And no matter what part of the political spectrum you find yourself on, chances are you have some level of disagreement with the way the economy is performing or the way the economy is being handled. The topic of money is so powerful and so all-consuming that on one hand, we will jump at the chance to vilify the top 1% as hoardy greeters And on the other hand, we will line up at gas stations to buy lottery tickets at the minute chance of joining them. (laughs) If Gerald's here, sorry, bro. (laughs) I need to call you out. U.S. News and World Report had an article on money a few years back, and the writer summed it up like this. For most of us, Money and our feelings toward it are dynamic and intense. We either love money or we hate it. We fear it or we worship it. But one thing is sure, we certainly never ignore it. Now, on one hand, money is nothing more than a necessary instrument of exchange, right? So let's take, for example, I go to Wienerschnitzel. (laughs) If you don't know what Wienerschnitzel is, it's a fast food hot dog place and... Don't sound so surprised. You don't get a physique like this eating kale and working out. All right, so I drive up to Wienerschnitzel, and I order two chili cheese dogs, order chili cheese fries, and a large root beer. If you're going to do it, you might as well do it. So I drive to the window, and I give the teenager $10.46, and exchange for my food, and I drive off, and at some point in the future, the owner of the establishment gives the teenager back $10.46 for an hour of his time, and then that teenager goes home, and he takes his $10.46, and he goes to iTunes, and he buys Justin Bieber's new album. So at the end of the day, my cholesterol and weight have gone up, his taste in music has gone down, and... <laughs> but none of that's the money's fault, right? It has just passed from hand to hand to hand. The Bible also says that money and wealth accumulation can even be a good thing. Elsewhere in Proverbs, it says a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And yet the Bible is also littered with countless examples of warning about the alluring power of money. Now, the reason our hearts are so often led astray in this is that money represents the most comprehensive substitute for God that the world has to offer. Money, more than anything else, attempts to promise only things that God can deliver. God offers you and I significance, security, power, 
belonging, acceptance. Money offers you and I significance, security, power, belonging, acceptance. It's crucial that you and I as believers settle this distinction in our hearts. The stakes are extremely high. Money disputes are the top indicator of divorce, and one in five of us have ended a friendship over arguments about money. And yet the Word gives us a simple solution to it all. Contentment. Simple, right? Simple, but not easy. We live in a world facing an epidemic of discontent. We are satisfied with our salary until our coworker gets a raise. Our car is fine until our neighbor drives up in that new luxury sedan. Our phone is perfectly okay until the new iPhone 6S Plus whatever comes out, right? <laughs> the best example of this, a few years back, I don't know if you remember this Best Buy commercial, and it was, it was a number of people who were so excited because they were convinced that they had just bought the latest and greatest of whatever gadget they had, only to find out that something newer and greater was just released. Now, the commercial ends with the guy taking delivery of his new 3D TV, and he's so excited until the delivery van drives by advertising the new 4D TV, <laughs> No glasses required, and his face goes from excited to dejected, and his daughter's running around in the yard mocking him, saying, you bought the wrong TV, silly head. (laughs) Paul gives us a little bit of insight into this in 1 Timothy. It says, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Let me, if I may, share a bit of a cautionary tale. Some of you may be old enough to remember the name Michael Milken. Now, in my world, uh, he was a bit of a pioneer, a titan of sorts. He came to prominence in the 80s. He's largely credited with the growth and the success of the high-yield bond market, commonly referred to as junk bonds. Now, Milken was incredibly successful. His firm, Drexel Burnham, was incredibly successful. He made a lot of money for his clients and for himself. Over the course of his career, he amassed an empire of over a billion dollars. And that was back in the 80s when a billion dollars was actually worth something. (laughs) Um, Unfortunately, in 1989, Michael Milken was charged with 98 counts of fraud, including insider trading. Eventually, he pled guilty on six lesser charges, paid $600 million in fines, and spent two years in prison. Now, by many accounts, he wasn't a terrible guy. He was very philanthropic throughout his career and has been even more so since his release in prison. And yet his name is synonymous with greed and corruption. So what got Michael Milken? In a word, discontentment. Discontentment is like a root growing up under the wall, undermining its structural integrity until it can no longer stand under its own weight. If you're struggling with discontentment, I can think of no better antidote than generosity. The simple act of giving removes our focus from ourselves and places it on the things of God. Whether it's in the area of tithes and offerings, giving to various causes, being generous with family and friends, or if you're like me and you drive around with a three-year-old conscience in the back seat that says, Daddy, we should give some money to that man. Every time we drive up to an intersection where there's someone asking, when we do this, and we sow generously into the things of God, there's another stone in the wall God is building to protect our souls 
from the love of money and discontentment. Now hear me when I say this. I know of a few people who are generous and are still discontent, but I don't know of anyone who is content without also being generous. I'm going to say it again. I know a few people who are generous and yet still struggle with discontentment, but I don't know anyone who is content without also being generous at the same time. And finally, we come to relational walls. In the 11th chapter of Proverbs, it says it like this. Where there, where there is no guidance, the people fall, and in abundance of counselors, there is victory. Although we really don't know much about the sluggard in the parable, it's safe to say that he isn't living in the abundance of counselors. I would say it's fair to assume that a desolate and barren vineyard is not the intentional handiwork of an attentive farmer and a group of trusted advisors. We are relational beings. We serve a relational God, and we were not designed to live in isolation. And yet all too often, we cut ourselves off from godly relationships intended to protect our blind spots. Now, some of you might be familiar with my family story, but most probably are not. Uh, My wife and I, Stacey, we got married at 23. We had the world in front of us. We had it all planned out. I was going to go to grad school. We were going to have 2.3 kids. We were going to retire early and travel the world. It started much that way when I got out of school. We prayed about starting our family, and we really felt like God was leading us to start having kids. And um, it was at this point that uh, we got excited, started preparing, and eventually, month after month, nothing happened. Um, Months grew into a year, and eventually we decided to go seek help for infertility. We went to the doctor, and although we had very few answers about what was going on, we were confident that that which we've been believing for was just around the corner. Months grew into years, and three years later, we got some really exciting news. In 2005, we found out Stacy was pregnant. Now, our efforts and our patience and our prayers had finally paid off. As you can imagine, we were ecstatic. We were super excited for our eight-week visit, because that's when you get to see the baby's heartbeat. And so we went into the doctor's office really excited, but immediately as the doctor began doing the exam, he knew something was wrong. And at that point, we got the most crushing news of our life that Stacy had miscarried. Just hours after we were supposed to see the baby's heartbeat for the first time, Stacy was in an operating room being prepped for a DNC. Now, I sat in her room waiting for her to come back, determined to be strong for her. When they wheeled her back in, I did the only thing I knew to do. I just held her hand and prayed for her. At some point, the anesthesia began wearing off, and just at that moment, a baby cried in a room next door. She lifted her head up, still groggy from the anesthesia, and asked me, is that my baby? Is that my baby? It was the single most gut-wrenching moment in my entire life, before or since. I went from merely helpless, helpless to take my wife's pain away, helpless to bring about the child we've been believing for, to angry, angry at God for planting a seed in our hearts, only to see it ripped away in disappointment after disappointment. After that, we began again. At this point, the treatments became increasingly costly, both financially, physically, even emotionally. In 2010, we came to an end. 
We had exhausted every medical avenue. We had tried anything and everything. And all we had to show for it were four miscarriages and eight years of frustration, disappointment, and despair. And at that moment, the most difficult thing I'd ever had to do in my life was to admit that it was over. This vision that we had carried in our hearts for so long was gone. Weary from the road we had been down, we had a decision to make. We could either embrace this new path of adoption with all of its uncertainties and risk, or we could just give up. I'd like to say that we embraced our adoption journey with all the excitement and anticipation that we had as 26-year-olds when the story began. But God did change our hearts, and eventually apprehension turned into anticipation. And on March 12, 2012, I got the most incredible news. Our little girl was being born. And three days later, in Baylor Hospital in Garland, an amazing selfless woman placed our daughter Catherine in my wife's arms for the first time. Our lives were forever changed. Fast forward a couple of years, we've been fortunate enough to adopt our son Ryan, who's now 18 months old. I often have this beautiful, impromptu exchange with my daughter. Out of the blue, she'll say, Daddy? I'll say, Yes, Princess. She'll say, I love you. And when I do, or when I hold my son with his big bushy head of golden curly hair, I'm often reminded on how many occasions it would have been so easy to throw in the towel. So many times we just wanted to give up. No matter how dark it seemed, no matter how hopeless the situation became, we just weren't allowed to quit. And do you know what, or rather who, kept us going? It was you. If it wasn't you specifically, chances are it was someone in this section reasonably close to you. Throughout our walk, we've been blessed to have friends, family, and mentors who loved us enough to be in the trenches with us. They were there to tell us about God's goodness and to point us back to the love of Jesus. Some relationships have endured from the very beginning. Many of you have picked up the baton somewhere along the way and locked arms with us. These are the types of relationships that sustain you. They don't happen by accident. They take a lot of work. But hear me when I say, from them spring the truth of God and protection from your heart's own deceptions. In many ways, our hearts were deceived, and it took men and women to stand in the gap for us and to be stone walls on our behalf. If you can't say that you have relationships like this, then you're exposed. The good news is you're surrounded by people in this church who love you and are willing to come alongside you and see you through whatever happens to come your way. But it requires a first step. Go to a small group, get involved, serve, just reach out. We need one another, amen? Amen. Spiritual walls protect us from self-reliance. Financial walls protect us from self-centeredness. And relational walls protect us from self-deception. When I first read this, I thought, at the end of the day, what's the ultimate tragedy here of the sluggard slumber? After all, he's comfortable in his own lack. He doesn't seem to be too dissatisfied with his state. So in a sense, what difference does it really make? The answer, I believe, lies in the purpose and the profit of a vineyard. In Solomon's day, like today, a farm like this would have existed for two reasons. One is to provide produce for those in the area. People likely would have depended upon the output of the vineyard for sustenance. And second, like most farms, it would have provided financially for the the owner. Typically, vineyards like this would provide not only for his immediate family, it would be passed down from generation to generation to provide for those that come after. 
Now, in the same way, the fruit born from the ground of your soul isn't only for you. In fact, I'd go so far to say it isn't even primarily for you. There are people God has called you to feed that will require a well-maintained and fertile heart, well-fortified against the armed man that is seeking to rob you of your calling. Now, in our home, we have the tremendous responsibility of showing and teaching our children what it means to trust and love the Lord, what it means to be a worshiper. I've had the privilege to walk people through all sorts of financial struggles with all the challenges and pitfalls that it can entail. And now my wife and I, we are full on evangelistic in our efforts to desire to tell people about adoption and to minister to people who find themselves in similar situations. We count it as joy to participate in God's reclamation of our little vineyard and see it bear fruit in our lives and the lives of others around us. As we close, some of you might be thinking, I know this is me. My vineyard's overrun with thorns and weeds. My spiritual walk, my finances, my relationships are in ruins. My life is just not bearing the fruit that I know that it is meant to. And yet you feel helpless to change and you think, I just can't do it. Well, the reality is, you're right. You can't do it. You certainly can't do it alone. It is only in the person of Jesus Christ who lived and died to deliver us from the idols that keep our hearts bound up and keep us from being what we were meant to be. It can happen, but only in the shadow of the Almighty, with walls well fortified by him and soil tended and cultivated by someone who's willing to pay the price to diligently seek wisdom. Lord, I thank you for the people here. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to come and worship as a family, Lord. We just ask that you would continue to build walls around our hearts. Father, that you would complete and perfect the work that you started in each of us. Lord, open our eyes to the states of our hearts, to the states of our vineyards, Lord. Bring us into all truth and all wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.